Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. There was a man named William Rotgen, and he accidentally discovered something in his lab in 1895. He was working with a cathode tube covered in aluminum, like we all do, right, Uh, from time to time. And he noted that the ray would leave images on some of the other materials in his shop. And through a set of happenstance, he discovered what we know as the X-ray. For months, William Rotgen had kind of tied himself into his lab. His wife, Bertha, would just bring him meals. He would work endlessly and feverishly toward this end of developing what we know as the X-ray. See, what Rotgen gave us was a way to see inside of ourselves. It was a revelation that would lead to revelations, a discovery that I can only imagine has saved countless lives. This morning, we are invited into Luke's final prophecy in his birth narrative that he gives us in Luke chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2. We've seen Mary's Magnificat. We've seen her discuss her focus on God's upside-down kingdom, that he humbles the exalted and exalts the humbled. We were invited, and we've heard from Zechariah and his prophecy about his son, John the Baptist, that he would be uh, the one to go before God's Messiah, who would usher in a new dawn for humanity. We last week saw the shepherds hearing from the angels that there was a Savior who was born to them, who is Christ the Lord. And this morning, we hear from another prophet and prophetess who have no other mention in the New Testament. Simeon and Anna will testify to the greatness of Christ in a different way. See, I think where we're heading this morning, and we're going to see that Jesus shows us who we are. Just like the x-ray kind of invites us to see things that are unseen, Jesus is going to expose us for who we truly are. This morning, we have a little bit different text in front of us in terms of the structure of it. What we'll find is the story of Simeon, which starts off the account, will match some of the story of Anna, which ends the account. So what we're going to do this morning is kind of cover our first and last sections in one heading and then kind of come back to the bottom there. So we'll see first that Jesus is revealed to those who look for him. In verses 22 through 28, and then verses 36 through 38, we're going to see that Simeon and Anna are looking forward to seeing this Messiah, and they're graced by God to be able to do so. Secondly, in verses 33 through 35, we'll get to kind of the heart of the passage where Jesus is a revealer of the hearts for all who look on him, a revealer of the hearts of all who look on him. I want to invite you this morning to Luke chapter 2. There's uh, pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab a pew Bible. If you have a Bible on an app or something, I invite you to learn with us from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 20. I'm going to start verses 22 through 24 this morning. When the time came for their purification, that's Joseph and Mary and Jesus, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You're saying, what on earth is happening here? See, Luke is bringing us into this invitation to understand that Luke or that Joseph and Mary are acting righteously on multiple Excuse me, multiple occasions in our passage this morning, Luke is showing us Joseph and Mary's adherence to the law. We can see this in these quotations that happen here in verses 22 and 24. First, we see this quotation from Exodus 13. We just saw this a few months ago in our time in Exodus, where uh, every firstborn from amongst the Israelites was supposed to be holy to the Lord, and they were supposed to kind of redeem them back with a sacrifice. So that's that first quotation that, uh, that's stated there in verse 23, every male who first opens the womb, right? The second quotation we get is from Leviticus chapter 12, and this is about laws of purification for women who had given birth. So uh, lots of things could make you unclean, as it were. You were not to come into the temple in a state of uncleanness, and one of those was childbirthing. And so what Leviticus chapter 12 opens up for us is that there were two ways to purify yourself. You could sacrifice a lamb, one year old, a pigeon, and a turtle dove. Or uh, for those who were not so wealthy to have all of those, you could sacrifice just two turtle doves or two pigeons. Now what is notable here this morning, why this is in our text, is that Luke highlights that they offer the lesser offering, that they don't have the resources to provide the greater offering. And so Luke and or Mary and Joseph, excuse me, are offering kind of that lesser offering because of their impoverished state. But again, you see this in verse 27. He came in the Spirit. Let's talk about Simeon. He came in the Spirit uh, and into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Or if we were to look at verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law. Multiple times, Luke is inviting us to see that Joseph and Mary were good law-keeping Israelites. They were inclined to obey the Lord's will, and that God had not placed this child, this Messiah Jesus, into the hearts of some, or into the homes of some heathen household. He had placed them in these faithful couple's arms. But they aren't the only holy ones in our passage. Look at verses 25 through 29. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, for you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel." See, this passage highlights a few different things for us this morning. First, it highlights Simeon's character. In verse 25, Simeon is a righteous and devout man, it says. Uh, notice something of, of the man that God uses to highlight his Messiah, this person who's going to speak this prophecy over the Christ, is not a priest. He's not a high priest. He's not a Sadducee or a Pharisee or anyone associated with the temple or temple service. 
Instead, it's this man, Simeon. Once again, God seems to work outside of the religious system of Israel to highlight his Messiah. So there's Simeon's character. There's Simeon's fate in verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You get this play on words with this concept of sight, that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so there's this prophecy that's there. There's Simeon's leading. It's not just his character, his fate. There's Simeon's leading in verse 27. He came in the Spirit into the temple. He's once again led by the Holy Spirit to just the right place in just the right moment of time to see God's Messiah, to see God's salvation. And notice his response in verses 30 through, or 29 through 32. He says that Jesus is God's salvation for everyone. He refers to Jesus as salvation. Look at what he says in verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. And notably, it's not just for Jewish people. This is for all people. Look at what he says in verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And when he gets into verse 32, he's going to kind of unpack that even more. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel, right? Jesus is a revelation to the Gentiles. If you aren't familiar with the book of Isaiah, there's a number of quotations in the book of Isaiah uh, that refer to the light that is coming to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Verse, chapter 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations. Chapter 52, verse 10, that the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Or in chapter 60, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. See, Isaiah speaks of a light coming to the nations. It's simply to say, as, as Simeon is saying here, that Jesus has come as a Savior to Gentiles too. Can't tell you how shocking this would have been to a, a Jew in the days that they were there would have been absolutely shocking. In fact, we can understand it as we read through the book of Acts how controversial it was that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. As we read through Paul's letters that this mystery would be revealed, this was a controversial subject. And so it's shocking what Simeon is saying here in verse 32. But he's not just for Gentiles. He's also coming to Jews and for glory to your people Israel, as verse 32 says. See, Jesus is the revelation of glory to Israel. He's here to reveal himself to Israel, to reveal the glory that he possesses. I have to admit this statement feels intentionally vague. I think Simeon's kind of burying the lead here as we're going to get more prophecy in verses 33 through 35 that'll get a little bit more sharp and to the point. But here he's speaking more openly about who Jesus is and what his role will be, a revelation a revelation of light to Gentiles, a revelation of glory to Israel, but the, establishing the Lord's purpose as it were. Now let's fast forward a bit in our passage and look at Anna. Verses 36 through 38 invite us into her account. Look with me there in Luke chapter 2. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. 
And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a string of facts stated here about Anna, and all of these facts are meant to kind of give her credibility, right? Like you and I, we have to kind of swim in these waters of credibility. We have to show ourselves faithful in particular areas for people to believe us, right? Well, this is what Luke is doing with Anna. First, she starts off that she's a prophetess, which puts her in rare air as far as the scriptures go. There's probably just a handful of prophetesses throughout the scriptures, women like Miriam and Deborah and Huldah and Noadiah. I've never even heard of that one. It's from Nehemiah, right? But this woman was in this kind of rarefied air as a prophetess. She was endowed with the Holy Spirit to be able to speak on God's behalf. And finally, uh, secondly, Luke gives her lineage in verse 36. She's of the tribe of Asher, which is unique because that's one of the northern 10 tribes and their kind of history had been wiped out. So for her to know her lineage shows that she's very true to the promises made to Israel. She had kind of kept with that lineage and she had existed in a long line of faithful believers. Verses 36 through 37, she was a widow the statement is a little clunky here, but what happens is that seven years into her marriage, she's widowed, and she's existed for 46 years as a widower. Verse 37, she's a worshiper. She worshiped night and day. She's fasting. She's always in the temple. She literally does not leave. I kind of wonder sometimes after Sunday services if some of you are trying to be like Anna. Not really. I joke. I kid. Something happens in verse 38 that changes all of it. Look at verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, here's this faithful, devout woman. And she comes in contact with her Messiah. Anna is introduced to God's promised one, and immediately she begins to tell others about Jesus's coming redemption. So we have two accounts here, right? We have Simeon, his faithful, righteous living. We have Anna, who is faithful and devout, even amidst a hard, difficult life. You know, I wonder this morning, I wonder if the x-ray could have come at a better time. First introduced in 1900s, somewhere around then, and we see the proliferation of cancers in the 1900s starting into the 2000s, right? What we needed was a tool that helped us see uh, inside someone, a, a, a tool that would allow us to see tumors and other things to diagnose those cancers properly. See, God meets us in the midst of our need. He's the perfect, almost designed tool, as it were, to meet us amidst our need. You remember Jesus' statement from the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Simeon, Simeon and Anna are faithful. They're faithful. They, they have these kind of similarities as described in our passage. Let's look here on the slide in front of us. 
Anna and Simeon are similar in that both are devout. Verses 25 and 37, both bless God. And both are waiting for this Messiah, excited for this Messiah to be revealed to them. See, both exhibit a desperation for God's salvation. Notice that neither of these two saints, when they're introduced to Messiah, kind of shrug their shoulders and say, I'm good. I'm faithful. I'm devout. I've done what I've needed to do. I don't need this saving I've accomplished a level of righteousness that I think God is good with. They needed their Savior. Anna doesn't yawn when she sees her Savior. Simeon doesn't simply shrug his shoulders and walk away. Both of these devout, righteous people praise God for the salvation that they see with their eyes. See, I wonder if righteous living actually makes me more aware of my need for righteousness that doesn't come from me. I wonder if the more we live inside the rules given by God, the more we know how gracious God actually is. It's a a kind of paradox. The more we walk with the Lord in holiness and righteousness, the more we realize how unfit we are to do so. If we're not careful, we we might miss one of the the greatest similarities that happens between Simeon and Anna, that these two are led by God. Notice how our characters come into contact with Jesus. Simeon, it most directly is, is led by the Holy Spirit into the temple at the exact moment when Jesus is there. Anna, quite differently, is led into the temple through the disastrous circumstances of her life and she stays there for some 40 years see the roads that lead simeon and anna to jesus were not constructed by self-effort and rule keeping the rules which brought simeon and anna to jesus were laid by god himself the roads that brought you and i to jesus were laid by god himself But I think this morning, if we kind of emphasize the righteousness of Simeon and Anna, we're kind of on the wrong foot in our passage. I think the heart of this passage happens in verses 33 through 35. See, all of the prophecy that's there uh, kind of leads up to this moment of clarity that's happening between uh, Simeon and the parents of Jesus. Look with me at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. And that's a cryptic statement, isn't it? Knowing what we know as we have read this gospel account of Luke. Sorry. You hear me now? All right, good.
Hear me now? Hey, we're going to fight through this thing one way or the other. Microphones be, be done. If I have to scream at you, I'll scream at you, right? See, knowing what we know now about Jesus and his crucifixion that's coming, these words carry a particular weight. They carry a particular kind of function for us. First, it starts off that Joseph and Mary were astonished, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about them in verse 33. Uh, Luke hasn't been shy about these prophecies. We've seen Zechariah said that Jesus would be like the dawn. The shepherds reported that Christ would be the Lord. Mary and Joseph keep hearing these items, these statements about who Jesus will be, and Mary's turning them over in her mind. They're marveling at what happens. But this prophecy from Zechariah isn't just about Jews. This is now global in its implication. This is about Gentile nations as well. Now this prophecy has moved from uh, the hope of Israel to the hope of humanity. Simeon gives Mary an important prediction in verses 34 and 35. Jesus is the reason for their rising and falling in verse 34. If you remember Mary, when she gave her Magnificat, she said this, she has, that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And Mary saw herself as a beneficiary of that, that she was humble and had been exalted through uh, the pregnancy with Jesus. But this is a bit different. According to Simeon, Jesus will be the cause of that lowliness and exaltation. If you look at what he says, verse 34, Behold, this child is, in a, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. See, what Mary attributed to God is now being stated about Jesus himself. It's not just this, that verse 34 tells us that Jesus will be opposed. Look at what he says. Uh, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. No parents want to hear this, do they, about their children? Jesus will experience opposition as a sign from God. If we were to kind of go back into the Old Testament and trace out all of the prophets and saints that had been opposed, we would find a long list of faithful people. We would find the the likes of Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah. We would find kings and others who had stood firm in their faith in the Lord and yet were opposed. Jesus himself will also stand in that line as one opposed to the point that Mary herself would suffer because of Jesus. That's what verse 35 seems to hint at. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary would watch her son die. She would be present at his crucifixion in Matthew 27. She would be handed off for her caretaking to Jesus' disciple, John, in John 19. She would help bury her son in the tomb in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus would know, or Mary would know pain because of her son, Jesus. The joy of Jesus' birth would be matched by the difficulty of his life and death. Finally, what we see is that Jesus would reveal the state of many people's hearts. Look at verse 35, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And what an interesting statement. See, Simeon speaks of Jesus as, as if he were a spiritual black light. Um, I had a friend recently tell me that he has 
this is kind of a gross story. I don't know if I should share this, but he has cats and he's trying to figure out which cat has peed where. So he bought this industrial grade blacklight to find the spots. So this is a bad analogy. Now I'm realizing this now in front of you. Jesus is a spiritual blacklight. He reveals the urine spots in our life. Wow. Okay. Should have thought through this one a little bit better. Jesus' presence divulges the true nature of what's in our hearts. Because Jesus was unabashedly God, his life forced the issue with others. His selfless love, his clear teaching, his powerful miracles, all of these set the average person in front of God himself. As such, you couldn't be on the fence with Jesus. You were either for him or you were against him. I love this statement in this story. Uh, William Rottengen, you know, discovers the x-ray, and his wife is invited out to be her test subject. Now, we're dealing with x-rays, right? So we know now that that's not a good thing you want to be around too much. But so he has her hold her hand underneath the x-ray light for 15 minutes, and then she sh he shows her the image. And it's reportedly claimed that she responded, and she said, I have seen my death. Her response is, is because she looked at this hand where the, the, the bones in her hand extended all the way down to the base of her wrist, and there were in these shadowy figures, it just frightened her to see inside of herself. See, when we look inside, we too might see our death, our judgment. We might see the, the signs of something wrong on the horizon, that we have rebelled against a righteous and holy God. When we come into contact with the person Jesus, it reveals all of the inadequacies and inconsistencies and sins that we ourselves harbor inside of ourselves. See, Jesus is this revealed revealer. He's a revelation from God. It's what Simeon says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus was revealing something hidden. For years, God had existed behind closed doors behind long, uh, thick curtains and stone walls. What was once shrouded had become disclosed in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Luke read this morning in John chapter 1 reminds us of that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father. Verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. It's so significant that Jesus would say in John 14, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the fullness, the representation of the fullness of God, the revelation of God himself to us. But it's not just that Jesus reveals God. It's that Jesus reveals us. Jesus reveals the hearts of those who see him. He was supposed to be opposed in verse 34. In fact, the opposition would be more than just one of words. Eventually, Jesus would be opposed to the point where he would be dragged to his death. He would go to his death. He would be nailed to a cross. He would be raised up, uh, put to death, and buried. See, God with us would reveal 
the sins inside of us, just like those who shouted out, crucify, crucify him. We have our hearts exposed when we come in conflict with Jesus. See, what we needed was not a little bit of help. We didn't need just a little push in the right direction. It wasn't just a, a jump start for our battery. What humanity needed was a sin substitute. Seems that's the rub for us, isn't it? When Jesus is revealed, the revelation of our nature becomes apparent. We need God's help to be made right with God. And the revelation of Jesus would reveal the depths of Israel's self-righteousness and our self-righteousness. Their adverse relationship with God would become more and more prominent throughout the life of Jesus. It's like the more we read about Jesus, the more we realize that we're not like Jesus. Imagine, you know, this is an outdated illustration, but remember those uh, transparency projectors that when I was school in, the, in school in the 90s and you would lay the transparency on it and when it would project the image? Let's imagine that you laid out the life of Jesus as it were on a projector, on a transparency, and then you were to lay over your life over top the life of Jesus. How would your life be incongruous with the life of Christ? Would it be in your impatience? Jesus was perfectly patient. Would it be in your lustfulness or your uh, desires? Would it be in your greed, in your envy? Would it be in your lack of love, care for others? How would you be found to be out of line with the shape of Jesus Christ? See, Jesus' righteousness was to reveal my unrighteousness. And this, in an effort to show my sinfulness and conquer it at the cross and in the resurrection. After all, Simeon is calling Jesus a revealer of hearts, a revealer of hearts, and also calling him salvation. God is exposing us through the righteousness of Jesus so that we see our unrighteousness and we bring our unrighteousness to God for forgiveness and mercy. Let me ask you this question. What does Jesus reveal in you? I think at this time we are as guilty as ever to kind of speak vaguely about the work of Jesus. Jesus is... uh, more than our avenue to world peace and personal happiness. If you see Jesus as a means to your better, more fulfilled life, uh, just clue yourself to verse 35 here, right? The sword will pierce through your own soul also. Jesus, his presence invites Mary and Joseph into heartache and suffering. To follow Jesus is a call to come and die. Luke chapter 9, we're so familiar. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How has the death of Jesus invited you to die to yourself? If Jesus is to be your Savior, he's also to be your Lord. We cannot manipulate the Son of God to get out of him what we want Now, Jesus has a much more aggressive agenda for us. He exposes our wrong desires, 
He changes our desire to square with his, and then he fulfills the desires, those desires by giving us the fullness of himself. See, I wonder sometimes this morning if we gather at gatherings like this, we go to our church services, we open our scriptures, we do all of these things because we want the Lord to fulfill our desires. We want him to, to meet us where we are. We want him to give us a great family life. We want him to give us a great kind of spirituality. We want to give him to give us a great job, a great comfort in so many different areas. But truthfully, following Jesus often means discomfort. It means dying to those areas that you so desire to see in yourself, and in dying to those areas, finding new life in Christ. Here's the beauty of this, right? Our dying to self is a means to spiritual life. When we give ourselves to the Savior, we find that uh, we receive tenfold what we gave up. It's not the same kind of things. We won't find ourselves rich and happy and healthy, but we'll find ourselves communing with the God that we were created to commune with, find ourselves given the fullness of God in Christ, enjoying the presence of God more. If you're willing to look and see what Jesus reveals in you, you're also capable of finding forgiveness in Jesus. That's the, the paradox in front of us this morning. I wonder if this holiday, as we celebrate Christmas tomorrow, we might be able to do that. We might be able to say, Lord, I, I, I need grace and mercy from you. I, I see in myself, as compared to the life of Christ, I see in myself unrighteousness. I see how I'm out of square with the life of Christ, and I need mercy and grace from your hand. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would establish this, that you would allow us to see our unrighteousness, the ugliness of our unrighteousness, that you might be the revealer of hearts, that you would, Lord Jesus, be the one who causes us to fall so that we might rise. Lord, we, Jesus, we recognize that your kingdom operates differently than ours. Our desires are foreign to the desires of your kingdom. We pray now that you would teach us to want what you want, to hate what you hate. And as you have restored us through faith in Jesus Christ to be renewed in these desires. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.